this is awesome. This is, this this is, is awesome. Very exciting. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Cheap Talk. My name is Jeff Kaplow. I'm an assistant professor of government here at William & Mary. And joining me, as always, is my esteemed colleague, Marcus Holmes. Hey, Marcus, how are you today? Good, Jeff. How are you doing? So uh, we have a couple of uh, questions in the old Cheap Talk mailbag. I thought we mm. could um, uh, brush off here. First question is from Amira from Tampa Bay. And Amira points to um, the presidential aspirations of one Nikki Haley, who was formerly the United States ambassador to the United Nations, and wanted to know what her experience as ambassador to the UN uh, should kind of tell us about her presidential aspirations, her qualifications for being president. How should we interpret the fact that she held that role formerly? Interesting question. Um, I have a couple of different thoughts sort of on Nikki Haley in particular, and then maybe a, a thought or two about sort of ambassadors and diplomats more generally, particularly, you know, in the sort of question of appointed, like political appointees versus kind of like lifelong civil servants that, that become uh, ambassadors and things like that. So Nikki Haley, um, I think, uh, thinking about her role as ambassador to the United Nations, a lot of people, I think Democrats and Republicans, uh, would agree that she did an effective job, not necessarily in the sense of the policies that she was pushing forth. So obviously, if you're you know Republican, you're more likely to like what the, the policies were. But I think a lot of people kind of looked at her and, and said, regardless of my policy preferences, this appears to be somebody who is a pretty strong uh, diplomat in the sense of, you know, she was very vocal at the UN. She was a strong, uh, you know, pushing for U.S. interests. The the issues that she sort of took on, um, you know, like the the perceived, um, you know, discrimination towards Israel at, at UN at the UN, counterterrorism, uh, trying to think through, you know, various funding things, peacekeeping. Like she got into a bunch of stuff, and and I think most observers would say that she was pretty effective uh, at that. Now, she was also part of lots of, you know, big controversies in the sense of, you know, uh, like the Paris Climate Accords, um, you know, being one of the people that was really pushing to get out of that. So it's it's a situation where you kind of have to separate the policy preferences of the person with how she did in that role. But I think a lot of people, you know, would look at this and say this is somebody that, that performed effectively. Now, I do think that's if she were to become president. Um, I do think this would help her. I think, number one, she's got a lot of relationships uh, uh, internationally to begin with because this is a role where you're interacting with lots of different people, lots of different countries, obviously. Uh, I think she has a good sense of sort of the politics of the United Nations, which isn't critical for the, a U.S. president necessarily, but she's going to kind of know the, the ropes, obviously, and know what arguments uh, work and what don't. And I think if nothing else, it just gives her, you know, kind of a leg up in the foreign policy uh, kind of world because she ha held this high profile uh, position. The one caveat with all that is that typically, I think Americans in particular don't really care about foreign policy when it comes to electing presidents. And so, you know, this is not anything I don't think that's going to kind of seal the deal for her or make it more likely that she's going to get the nomination even, because I don't think Americans really, at the end of the day, rank foreign policy that highly on the things that they care about when looking at candidates. They care more about, you know, the economy, uh, you know, previous service at a domestic level and stuff like that. Even if Americans did care about foreign policy positions, I think it's a rare U.S. ambassador to anything that would carry some kind of particular policy view into that position that they could then call their own. So I, I'm not sure that I associate Nikki Haley with any particular 
foreign policy perspective based on her time as the U.S. ambassador to the U.N. And that's not entirely surprising because U.S. ambassador positions aren't really policymaking positions. They're policy implementation positions. And that's maybe less true at the U.N. than at the other ambassadorships. But it's generally true that it's not the U.S. ambassador to the U.N. that makes U.S. policy toward the U.N. It's the State Department that makes U.S. policy toward the U.N. Just like the U.S. ambassador to to some other country doesn't make policy toward that country. They implement a policy that's been established at the at the level of the State Department and the and the White House and the national security establishment in, in general. So th- the idea that there's something that comes from that experience of being an ambassador that then translates into kind of a particular policy expertise or perspective, I think is is a tough sell generally. And in fact the the idea that ambassadorships carry any kind of uh, substantive weight, I think is called into question by the fact that most ambassadorships, well, not most, but um, most of the kind of high profile ambassadorships go to political appointees who generally have little or no expertise in foreign affairs. And this is kind of a a continuing debate within the, the U.S. national security establishment as to how U.S. ambassadorships should be chosen. Um, and there's a, a divide in the State Department between uh, foreign service officers, career of Department of State officials who have deep expertise in their issue areas, and political appointees who are brought in because they were big donors to a presidential campaign. And, you know, one of the kind of recent trends has been the increase in the share of ambassadorships that go to big donors rather than career foreign service officers. It kind of has averaged over the years about 30% of U.S. ambassadors are political appointees compared to 70% um, career officials. And the career officials tend to get the kind of less well-known countries or countries that are particularly tricky. But countries like the U.K. or India or places like that that are high profile and not seen as a politically difficult situation are tend to be given to, to big donors or, or political allies of the president. But that percentage has been going up. So it has historically been about 30%. Under the Trump administration, it jumped up to about 45% in something in that range. And uh, the Biden administration kind of talked a lot about reducing that number, but is kind of hovering at about 40% right now. Part of that is that Biden administration still has a very large number of ambassadorships that have not been filled, which is something something else we, we might want to talk about. But every once in a while, there'll be a policy proposal. I think Elizabeth Warren had this proposal during the last uh, presidential campaign where the the candidate will say, I pledge not to have this be a system where big donors get get ambassadorships. But those candidates never win. <laughs> I don't think there's I don't think that's a coincidence, right? I mean, that's the kind of thing you say when maybe you're not raking in the the, the big money donations anyway. And I think one illustration of of kind of the importance that presidents place on this system of rewarding donors is uh, the recent case of Eric Garcetti, who was recently confirmed by the Senate to be the U.S. ambassador to India and was previously the mayor of Los Angeles, I believe. I think that's right. His nomination, which was made right away when the Biden administration took office, his nomination was held up for two years because of allegations that he was aware of or should have been aware of systematic uh, sexual harassment by one of his employees in his office. So not by him, but by one of his employees. The Senate kind of just didn't act on his nomination and President Biden uh, just refused to nominate anyone else. Um, And so for two years, 
we've had no ambassador to what I think most would consider a strategically important uh, ally going forward, India, um, a big, important country, um, particularly in the face of uh, India's kind of waffling a little bit on their view toward Russia and its invasion of Ukraine. I mean, it would be maybe a good time to have an ambassador in place. But the Biden administration felt so strongly about rewarding a political ally that they refused to nominate someone else. And ultimately, Eric Garcetti's uh, allies hired a lobbying firm to kind of push additional senators to to switch sides. And his his uh, nomination was narrowly confirmed um, just a couple of weeks ago. And I, I think this just illustrates that like presidents don't care, <laughs> don't care about having um, an ambassador in place. They care about the ability to reward allies with with these positions. Well, Jeff. I, I agree with a lot of what you said, but that, that's a particularly cynical take. Let me let me give you a slightly different way of thinking about this, right? On the one hand, it's it's obviously true that a lot of presidents are kind of rewarding uh, donors, right? And so this is just sort of like a quid pro quo uh, type of situation where they're getting you know, payback or they're getting something for their, their money when the, when the person becomes president. I think that political appointees in general... You could make a nice argument that one of the values of having a political appointee is that you have somebody that, at least theoretically, you have a good relationship with, you trust, you have experience going back sometimes, you know, decades, you've worked on business deals before. And so, yeah, they might be a donor, they might be a political appointee, but if they're also somebody that you happen to think will do a really good job, then it's not, to me, it doesn't strike me as the end of the world to put in somebody, somebody like that. If you imagine yourself coming into a position as president of the United States and the State Department comes to you and says, OK, we have these these open you know, ambassadorships that we need to fill. And there's all these countries and they're giving you these names of people that are you know, civil service, that have been in the foreign service for, for 30, 40 years. They have the experience, but you don't know them. You don't know them individually. You don't know if you can trust them. They've, they've done a good job, obviously, to get in the position where they'd be even eligible for something like this. But at the end of the day, if you don't know the person, you might feel a little bit like, I would rather have somebody that has less experience in this role, but because I know that I can trust them and I get along with them, I know they're effective, that this might actually be the right, the right move. There's somebody that I'm thinking of in particular. So the Obama administration, Caroline Kennedy uh, was a political uh, appointee ambassador to Japan. And I think even Republicans looked at that and said, like, she did a fabulous job. She didn't have any diplomacy or little diplomacy experience, you know, but she went and she she got things done. And people thought it was a very good, good pick. And I think the reason Obama, you know, chose her as opposed to somebody who had been in foreign service was that he knew her. He respected her, um, obviously goes back to the, to the Kennedy uh, uh, family. And so I think that this is actually something where, you know, you can make an argument where political appointees are not necessarily a, a terrible idea, uh, and in some cases might actually be the right choice if you're in a situation where you need somebody that you can you can trust. I will say, however, I was thinking about while you were talking, you, the Garcetti example. The the one that really sticks in my mind is I forget his first name, but Sondland, the guy, the Trump uh, appointee to to the EU that got you know all uh, caught up on the in the was it the first impeachment the second I think it was the first impeachment with the Ukraine phone call in the in the testimony that Solomon had to give so that was a terrible example this guy was like a hotel businessman uh just you know very wealthy had very little experience in the EU very little experience in in diplomacy and it it did not work out well for him that's Gordon Solomon you're talking about Gordon Solomon that's that's his first name right and uh so I think it definitely goes goes both ways, but I wouldn't necessarily uh, think that just because it's a political appointee that you're going to end up with somebody that that can't do the job. 
Yeah, the argument you you sometimes hear people make, and I, I don't know how much people really believe this, but but this, you heard you hear this argument that well, what you really want is someone who has the ear of the president, right? This right. is the phrase, this is the phrase you always hear. Yeah. Someone who can just pick up the phone and call up. Particularly, this is important maybe with President Trump. Call up uh, President Trump, get him on the phone, get some policy done, get his country, the country that that person was representing, um, in in the limelight, and get the attention that they need. You know, if you're a country like Japan or India, you might be heartened to have a political appointee, someone high profile, someone with a personal relationship with the president who can just reach out and make things happen when necessary. But I think that's mostly window dressing for what is a kind of spoils system that as a way of generating new big money donors for the next election, really. People pony up to donate to presidential campaigns, partly with the idea that they'll be rewarded in ways like this. And so the whole enterprise is designed to kind of perpetuate um, those kind of big money donations. So I, I think if you had to guess who's going to do a better job, not, not having any, had any experience with them one way or the other, who's going to do a better job, this very rich person with no foreign policy experience or this career foreign service officer, I think your money's got to go on the career foreign service officer. And to the extent that we're choosing people who are not the most qualified for these positions solely to reward donations to a presidential campaign, that doesn't seem like great policy. I'm not saying that there's any, that there's any realistic hope of changing this in the, in the, in the foreseeable future, unless you had like a, a very strange candidate um, become president. But, but like, I don't think, I don't think it makes sense to argue this is the best way to do it. You can kind of say, well, we want someone with the ear of the president, or we want someone with a personal relationship, but like, really, we don't. What we prefer is someone with expertise who can advise the president on these issues and have some credibility with the country that they're they're stationed in. So I think the other uh, important point, though, is I wouldn't want to leave the listeners uh, with the idea that these ambassadors are not really uh, making policy. I, I know you said, you know, like in Nikki Haley's case, for example, at the UN, she's there to kind of, you know, basically push through whatever the policy that the, the State Department and, and the executive office has decided. I think you're right that in general ambassadors don't like make policy, but but in the implementation there is a whole like wide range of activities, and, and for some of these, you know, you are sort of charged with sort of like mini policy making, right? So I think of you know something a state like India, you know, if the United States is is interested in developing you know better ties uh, with India, and the charge that Biden you know gives Rossetti is to go and and make this happen, and we're trying to you know balance against China, we need to have more manufacturing in India to kind of take you know, the decoupling from China and all that kind of stuff, how that occurs is actually incredibly complicated and, and difficult. So like many policy decisions have to be made on a day-to-day -day basis uh, to, to implement the larger, larger policy. So I think oftentimes, you know, sometimes students think that like ambassadors, like literally don't do anything. Like they go to cocktail parties and they have, you know, they go to like these big events and they, they, they cut rope at various buildings that are being opened. But in many instances, they actually are working really hard and doing a lot of the sort of nitty gritty stuff that needs to get done, relationship building and meeting with trade organizations and stuff like that, unions, to, to, to get the overall policy goals uh, implemented. So implementation, it sounds a little kind of kind of boring and it sounds a little bit like not as exciting as policymaking, but I think it's just as important or maybe even more important uh, in terms of getting stuff done on the on the ground. I absolutely agree. I, I don't mean to undersell policy implementation. I mean, that that's where, where a lot of the real work is done. But just going back to the original question here, what can we learn about Nikki Haley from the policies she espoused as U.S. ambassador to the U.N.? And my answer is really nothing, 
because the policies she's espousing as U.S. ambassador to the U.N. are the policies that are set by somebody else and given to her to espouse. So it's it's a, a different question. What can we learn by uh, about her by the way she implemented that policy? And there maybe there's something to be learned. Um, and I just don't know enough about her performance as U.S. ambassador to the U.N. to to make an informed statement about that. But, you know, when she's making a speech at the U.N., what she's saying in her speech is U.S. policy created by somebody else in D.C. You know, she can put her own spin on it for sure, but it's not coming from her. And so I think we just, you know, as we're evaluating candidates for office, that's something we should be aware of, right? Mm-hmm. That, that That's a different kind of experience than it would be to be coming off of being Secretary of State, for example, where you have a much more policymaking role. Okay, we have another listener question. Uh, this one is from Sadie from Palm Desert. And uh, Sadie wants to know about Russia's announcement, Russia's recent announcement about putting nuclear weapons in Belarus. And Sadie asks for our thoughts on this, um, wondering if this announcement is partly in response to the ICC human rights charges, which maybe we should also talk about. Sadie points out that it often seems like Putin threatens the use of nuclear weapons every time something goes wrong for him. And so maybe this is an example of, of that behavior. And just to give the listeners a little bit of, of background here, Russia announced recently that it was going to be providing Belarus with nuclear warheads to be delivered by Belarusian aircraft or missiles. Russia made the claim in that, in that announcement that or Putin made the claim in that announcement that this is just like what NATO does uh, with its Western European allies. And just to kind of get, get some facts out, uh, you know, that's not exactly true. That, that is kind of allowed under NATO rules, but that's not exactly what the U.S. does. So the U.S. does provide to NATO allies nuclear bombs that could be used by NATO allied aircraft. So in that way, there's a parallel. But the U.S. does not support uh, NATO missiles with nuclear weapons. So in that way, it's it's a little bit of a different story. And one you know concern you might have if you're thinking about the kind of tit-for-tat nature of Russia-U.S. Uh, relations in the, recently is that Russia kind of opening the door to nuclear, to Russian nuclear warheads on Belarusian missiles maybe opens the door for the U.S. to provide support for NATO country missiles with nuclear weapons on them. And that's something that we haven't done in, in years and years. And so maybe this is uh, concerning if it causes the U.S. to rethink rethink that policy. Do you have any thoughts on, on this, Marcus? Uh, you know, I, I don't I don't love it. I mean, my my hot take is that this is once again, I think Putin's attempt to use a little of the sort of nuclear blackmail kind of strategy we've been talking about on this podcast uh, now for over a year. Um, and, and frankly, to try to scare the West, you know, I think he knows exactly when, when he says uh, we're putting tactical, uh, nuclear weapons in Belarus, like the effect of that is to your average American or somebody living in Berlin is to get a little nervous. Like, well, why are we, why, why is he doing that? Like, what's this all about? Like, what's, what is he trying to scare us, uh, into, into doing? So I just, I really get, you know, nervous when we start, you know, getting, it's not the rhetoric now about tactical use. It's now like actually moving, moving weapons. And so there's nothing about this story that I like. And I agree with you that I'm a little nervous about the, the tit for tat sort of uh, escalation potential. I just to clarify though, that, that, that Russia, as far as we know, has not actually moved any nuclear weapons into Belarus, that this is just Putin saying that they would be willing to do so. And we had already kind of known about the preparation of Belarus's military to accept nuclear weapons in the case that Russia decided 
to to transfer nuclear weapons, not to transfer, to station nuclear weapons there. We don't know whether Putin will actually do this, right? This is just kind of laying the groundwork for something that might happen. And so it goes into that big category of kind of nuclear threat type things that increase the danger that there is some kind of inadvertent escalation in this conflict and demonstrate Russia's commitment and resolve, right? That they continue to do this sort of thing to to show the to show NATO and Ukraine that they are not backing down and that they care about the results here. Um, and it goes along with other dangerous stuff that that Russia is doing. So, um, well, and that both the U.S. and Russia are doing now. So I saw in the news today that uh, the United States has said it's going to stop some of the data sharing it had been doing under the New START treaty. Um, so you'll recall this is a treaty that that Russia bailed on uh, pretty recently. And the U.S. had kind of continued sharing information under the treaty, information like how many nuclear forces do we have in particular bases? Um, and this is all designed to kind of reduce the the risk of some accident, uh, some accidental ex- escalation. Apparently today, the um, U.S. Undersecretary of State for International Security called the deputy foreign minister in Russia, had a conversation, asked them if they would continue sharing this kind of information. Russia refused. And so the U.S. said, well, we're not going to share this information either, which is, you know, not really a big deal. This wasn't there. We're going to continue to share other kinds of information. We're going to continue to occasionally release information about the number of nuclear weapons we have and where they are. So this isn't a a big deal in any kind of specific way, but it just goes to the overall erosion of communication between these parties. And that's never great. And, you know, I guess the U.S. thinks that maybe this can send a message to Russia that we're we're not going to just accept them bailing on this treaty. But Russia doesn't care about this. You know, so this is just a just a way to make things more dangerous without any real benefit to the United States. But I understand the feeling in the Biden administration. You have to do something in response to Russia bailing on this treaty. You can't just treat it as as business as usual. Right. It, it, you know, Jeff, I feel like longtime listeners of this podcast will will agree with me. We've had this same conversation about different sort of aspects of what Russia is doing, but it's all like just a variance of the same kind of theme, which is, you know, Russia doing something that we both view as uh, irresponsible. And then the United States being in a position where they have to make a decision. Do we do the sort of responsible thing and try to like take the temperature down and you know try to try to make sure that everybody you know stays calm and and you know the emotions are are sort of subdued, or do we sort of you know have to feel like we have to respond in some way? And I'm not saying that the Biden administration is doing the wrong thing here, but it's just like over and over and over again. It's like you know that Putin will make a statement, some type of threat. Sometimes it's vague, sometimes it's very specific, like in this particular Belarus case, but. We're always in this position of, of, you know, sort of in the moment trying to understand how we should be responding uh, to these, you know, behaviors that, quite frankly, are, are I think, irresponsible and, and dangerous. And it's just we, we're, we've been doing it now for, for a very long time. And it's, it's you know, <laughs> I, I enjoy talking about the, the specifics, but it's like the same exact conversation over and over again. Well, so you're saying this podcast is getting repetitive and we should. I'm saying Putin. I'm saying Putin's getting repetitive. Right. It's not us, dear listener. It's not us. You know, it's, we're, it's, it's we're ready to talk about new stuff. If if Russia and the U.S. would do something different, then we'd have something new to talk about. But um, actually, I don't want to I don't really hope for that. Let's let's just stick. With right. Exactly. Let's not. Yeah. Exactly. I, I'm I'm fine with rhetoric. Let's just leave it. At yeah, that. Just rhetoric. is OK. We'll talk about rhetoric. Right. We're happy. To do exactly. That. Exactly. So while we were talking last time, I think the International Criminal Court, the ICC, issued an arrest warrant for Vladimir Putin. So that's something. That is something. You want to talk about that? I would like to talk about that. It's interesting. Um, an arrest warrant. Okay. So the ICC 
basically has said to Putin, uh, we think that you are responsible for um, war crimes, genocide, crimes against humanity, you know. Yes. Well, so this particular arrest warrant was for, I think there's a lot to choose from, frankly, but but, right. but this particular arrest warrant was for a pretty horrific behavior of either ordering or allowing allowing a policy to go on whereby Ukrainian children were basically abducted and sent back to Russia from from war zones. This this was the specific incident that the ICC was looking into and issued this warrant on. And there are other uh, accusations of war crimes against Putin and and high level Russian leadership, but this is the one that uh, kind of came first um, on the right. list. Right now, Jeff. Um, you know, when the United States, uh, the, the city of Williamsburg uh, police department issues a, a, a warrant, right. Or that the, the court issues a warrant and, uh, they come in and arrest you like at your house or at your place of business. That's usually like a police officer that will, will do that. Are you speaking from personal experience here or I have lots of experience with this. Okay. This is unfortunately part of my day-to-day life. So the ICC, does the ICC have a police force? They do not. They do, they not. do not. Okay. So then. How does this work? We have a warrant for somebody's arrest, uh, but the ICC has no uh, a police to go out and arrest Putin, right? So it's not like they're going to send like a, a helicopter into Moscow and like knock on his door and you know take him to the ICC. So how does how does this work? What does the warrant do? So the way it works is that countries that have signed on to the Rome Statute, which is the charter of the International Criminal Court. It's the international treaty that establishes the court and gives the court some kind of international legal power. If you signed onto that treaty, you've committed yourself, I believe, to enforce the orders of the court. And so were Vladimir Putin to travel to a country that has signed this treaty, I think, or according to Wikipedia, 123 states are party to this statute. If you travel in one of those 123 states, then you are subject to arrest uh, because the ICC has issued this. Well, let's let's just be clear. Why why won't he be arrested in Russia? Because Russia never ratified the Rome Statute, right? Now, That's right. we might disagree and say, well, even if had they, it's unlikely that they... Well, nor has the United States, right? Right. So it's unlikely, you know, right. but let's assume, let's assume for a second. Um, just to play devil's advocate here. Let's just say that Russia did, they said they signed the thing, they ratified it, they're good to go. If the ICC has an arrest warrant uh, for Putin, is it likely that Russia is going to turn over its head of state? No, I, I'm, I'm thinking it's not. Probably not. Probably not. So the, the issue here is, is twofold, right? So you need a, the state that the, the person who has a warrant out for them to either be a full member of the Rome Statute, a signee and ratified and all that kind of stuff, and willing to hand the person over. And this does happen, of course. This is in African countries with a lot of these cases, you know, kind of come from where unfortunately they've had, you know, horrendous um, you know, genocides and things like that. The state is actually willing to hand the person over. So that does happen. But you need either the state that is housing, hosting the head of state to to hand them over, or alternately, if the if the head of state travels to a country that has ratified, that they would then be willing to make an arrest and then send them to uh, the ICC. So it's actually really tricky um, to have this all work out, of course, right? So you have you know you, you issue issue a warrant with very low, I think most people would say, very 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 low chances of actually resulting, at least in the in the short term, with Putin's arrest, right? So then the question is, Jeff, well, if everybody knows that and we know that the, the likelihood of Putin being arrested and, and held for these crimes 
and tried and, and charged with it and have a trial and all that. Why do it at all? What is what's going on here? What why why make this big, you know, sort of production and have a arrest warrant that's very likely to fail? Yeah, I mean, well, that's that's the question. I mean, I, I think the folks involved in this are under no illusions that this is going to result in uh, in Putin's immediate arrest and transfer to The Hague to stand trial. Um, that that's not what anyone is thinking. But I think there's still a couple of uh, issues at play that the court considers and, and, and that the folks who designed the statute consider. And, and so one is that um, there is something to be said, perhaps. Um, and I'm not myself a strong advocate of this view, but I'll just I'll just put it out there. There's something to be said for enforcing the international law or at least like making a statement about violations of international law, regardless of whether there's any hope of bringing someone to justice. Right. And so from a perspective of establishing that international law affects both the powerful and the not powerful, um, we should still have an arrest warrant put out for Vladimir Putin, even when there's no chance of bringing him to The Hague for trial, the same way we would issue an arrest warrant for someone for whom there was a chance of bringing them to to The Hague to stand to stand trial. So you don't want your international law to be kind of subject to an additional check of, well, how feasible is this really in the in the um, in the international legal system? So that's one kind of way you might think about this, that there's there's something important and symbolic about these kinds of statements, even when they don't result in an actual arrest. There are maybe more concrete ways that uh, that this might matter. Assuming let's just put the whole let's arrest him thing uh, to the side for a moment. There are other ways that this kind of an arrest warrant or something like that could, could matter. So um, I have in front of me a quote from Harold Coe, who uh, was once uh, the U.S. State Department's uh, kind of top uh, legal person in the Obama administration. And he said, quote, anything that delegitimizes that delegitimates him isolates him. Anything that isolates him weakens him. Anything that weakens him hurts his bargaining power. And Coe's argument here is that this kind of statement delegitimizes Putin in a way, makes him more toxic to deal with. If you're a right-thinking international leader in the international system, you don't want to be tarnished by your association with Putin. And so the, every time something like this happens that draws attention to Putin's status as a war criminal, well, that has some follow-on effect that actually weakens Putin in his attempts to do things internationally. And for that reason, is, is, is maybe worth pursuing. I mean, couldn't the exact opposite argument be made? I mean, you have an organization that many uh, people in Russia, I think, would probably be skeptical of to begin with, right? So, like, the fact that Russia never ratified it tells you something about uh, what the, how the state views the ICC. And I, I, it's complicated, but I think you can infer from that there's lots of people that probably don't think the ICC is, is, a, is looking out for Russia's interests, let's say. You have a lot of arguments in Russia and other countries that – the problem that is occurring for uh, Russia is the West. Like they're the they're the problem. They're the ones that are causing all this. And so you have this organization, the ICC, which for many would perceive as like a Western quote unquote UN uh, organization, saying we're going to arrest your head of state. I could imagine a scenario where people would say, not only does this not bother Putin, but he actually likes it because it plays into the narrative that they're out to get him. You know, I mean, it's yeah. not unlike what Trump was doing last week, saying I, I anticipate being arrested on Tuesday. It didn't happen. Maybe it'll happen tomorrow. Maybe it'll happen on Thursday. But it didn't happen. 
But for his supporters, actually, this was not a bad thing at all for a lot of them because they said, like, look, every, he is the victim. They, they're out to get me, right? So I'm a little skeptical of the argument that you just gave. Uh, uh, that's not your argument. The argument that you, you were sort of relaying where this isolation, delegitimization hurts him. I think you could also make an argument that this is if might have like no effect whatsoever or alternately, you know, have something to do to boost the narrative that he's he's been sort of trying to to make. Right. And then if that's the case, then you're actually helping Putin in a very sort of counterintuitive way rather than hurting him. There, it's not just that you're potentially helping Putin, you're potentially hurting the cause of international law and the International Criminal Court. And this is something that folks who study uh, international organizations worry about a lot. When you're uh, an international institution and you issue this kind of a thing, an arrest warrant for Vladimir Putin, and then that is ignored, as it appears this will be. Um, so we've already seen Vladimir Putin invited to attend a, a summit in South Africa, which is a party to this treaty. And, you know, of course, they're not going to arrest him. They want him to come and join and join the, the meeting. So when you're when you're an international organization, you issue this kind of arrest warrant, folks ignore it. What does that say about the the value, the uh, legitimacy, the importance of your institution? It sends a strong message of weakness to the international community. And so the next time this court wants to do something that requires international cooperation, it has an additional hurdle to jump because its reputation has potentially been damaged in the international community. And this has parallels in other institutions. So I study the Nuclear Nonproliferation Treaty, as uh, maybe listeners are aware. And, well, you should uh, tell us about that at some point. <laughs> yeah, I should. And one of the cases in my book is uh, like looks at this issue with regard to the, the Nuclear Nonproliferation Treaty. And there are actually some really interesting declassified CIA assessments from kind of the early years of the MPT, where they were looking at uh, the verification and monitoring mechanisms that were built into the MPT. And, and there's an organization based in Vienna called the International Atomic Energy Agency. And their job is to kind of go look at nuclear facilities all over the world and determine if countries are cheating on their nuclear commitments and secretly developing weapons. So the CIA had some information, apparently, in the, in the 70s, that uh, there were a lot of weaknesses with the IEA's verification and monitoring and that a lot of other countries knew about these weaknesses. And CIA confidently predicted that um, this information was going to come to light and it was going to reduce confidence in the, in the nuclear nonproliferation treaty and uh, the whole thing might collapse because of it. But what actually happened, and the CIA kind of revisited this years later, this assessment, what actually happened was nobody said anything about the weaknesses that were in this in this verification and monitoring, even though a lot of countries kind of knew there were some serious weaknesses. And the CIA kind of revisited this assessment and they said, well, we kind of underestimated that countries were kind of willing to let this go, partly in order to preserve the credibility of the system, right? That they didn't want to draw attention to the weaknesses in the system for fear of you know, causing further weakness that others then would would think that the system didn't work and would seek nuclear weapons because of it. So you can kind of see this collusion among countries in trying to bolster international institutions um, and make sure that others think that they're strong, even when they might have evidence that they're weak. And so international institutions like the ICC have to grapple with this, that when they issue these kinds of, of statements and then countries kind of publicly ignore them, 
well, now they have a harder job next time. And so there's some incentive maybe for institutions like the ICC not to do this sort of thing, right? To make sure that the kinds of statements they issue are measured and moderate and that they don't issue arrest warrants for heads of state who will never come to justice. So this is a, a real active area of research in, in international institutions. First, I got to say, I, I am impressed at your ability to bring everything back to. So we went from an ICC uh, arrest warrant or Putin to the, the NPT and nuclear weapons. That was I thought that was a great example. That was that was relevant. That was really well done. No, it was great. It was great because what it, what you were able to do is you were able to generalize the argument, not just in the ICC case, but to broader institutional theories. And I think that that's I think that's wonderful. Let me just say a couple I think one one way to understand what this is about, in addition to all the things that we've talked about, right, the symbolism and, and stuff like that, there are precedents or there is precedent for um, heads of state to be tried after they're out of office, right? So, for example, I, I'm thinking about uh, Slobodan Milosevic in, in Yugoslavia. This is before the ICC. This is the International Criminal uh, tri tribu Tribune? Tribunal. For Yugoslavia, ICTY. And I think it predates the, the ICC. But the, but the bottom line was Slobodan Milosevic was, was charged with, you know, uh, war crimes and, and lots of very similar types of things that people have alleged Putin has been doing in Ukraine. This was happening uh, during the breakup of Yugoslavia and the, and the wars that were occurring in Sarajevo and other places. So when a new government comes in after this, after this happens and Yugoslavia breaks up and you have Serbia – uh, is its own, you know, country, and they have their 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 political process takes over, and there's new leadership. They make the decision after the ICTY issues this this warrant to actually arrest Milosevic, who is no longer the the head of state, but ver but was very recently. And one of the reasons they did that is they wanted to show, like, we're different. Like, this is not – he was a very powerful figure in what was Serbia, quote-unquote, because it was the former Yugoslavia, very powerful figure, and had a lot of allies and a lot of support. But the new regime, the new government wanted to say, no, we're going to comply with international uh, law. We're going to comply with this, this uh, uh, trial. We're going to send them to the Hague. And, and that's exactly what they did. So I'm not saying that's going to happen here, but it's not crazy to imagine a situation where Russia does undergo some type of uh, political change, whether it's because of you know, discontent domestically, whether things just run their course with Putin, whatever. And the, the new uh, powers that be in Russia, if this arrest warrant is still valid, or if the ICC issues another one at some point down the line or something along those lines, might actually make the decision to arrest them and, and go ahead with the trial. I think that's also unlikely, but I do at least want to point out for, for listeners, it's not unheard of, and it has happened in the past. But the, the Serbia case is very different. But, you know, there is some, if you're for an optimist for the ICC and you're hopeful that one day Putin will have to stand trial for these crimes, I think the Milosevic case is one of the ones that you can look at and say, okay, this is not all that uh, unprobable because there is a case, there's precedent for it. You know, the, this whole situation has been kind of easy to dismiss, right? It's like, okay, the ICC puts out this arrest warrant. Everyone collectively says, oh, that has no bearing on anything. And, you know, we all we all move on. So I, I think that's kind of the prevailing take out there. So I'll just maybe give a few reasons why there might be some real impact here. Subtle impact, not a dramatic impact, but an impact around the margins where you might want to have this kind of thing occur um, even if we know there's not going to be an actual arrest of, arrest of Putin. So 
one thing that this does, and, and this is actually something that came out in the in the ICC statement of the proceedings, which I don't think many of the pundits on this have, have actually looked at. But but one of the things that came out is that this is an ongoing crime, right? That the that what's going on with the the abduction of Ukrainian children and sending them to, to Russia continues to happen in occupied areas of Ukraine. And by drawing attention to the ongoing crime, it is possible, at least, that this kind of a, an arrest warrant, so it wasn't just for Putin, it was also for the, the official in charge of this kind of policy, that by drawing attention to this, maybe there's less of it. Maybe Russia reverses course, or at least it draws more international attention to this practice, subjects it to more international scrutiny, and has some real impact for some children, right? And so that alone may be a reason enough to kind of go public with this sort of thing and issue the warrant. So that, that's one issue. I think it's plausible that this has some effects, even if no one is arrested, in, the, in terms of uh, smaller things like restricting Putin's travel slightly. Um, I think is is one possibility. There was a, a couple of reports that that maybe because of this there would be some children sent back, right? Uh, so like like little things that Russia might do to try to relieve international pressure based on this. So if that kind of thing happens, then then um, this sort of policy is worthwhile. And then just to echo what you were saying about Milosevic, um, I uh, saw someone say on, on uh, Mastodon or Twitter, whatever we're using these days. That, uh, you know, this is how every ICC statement is, um, that it's always how it is. There's, a, there's an arrest warrant issued for someone and everyone says, well, that person is never going to see justice. But then sometimes they do. Right. And so it always starts this way where you're like, oh, you know, yet another uh, unenforceable international edict from this organization. But yet sometimes we have these trials. Eventually, these people are out of power or the, the winds shift in some way and that person can be brought to justice. And this is a necessary first step if that's ever going to happen. So maybe that's a kind of more hopeful take on, um, on what's going on with the ICC here. Yeah, and because I'm a, I'm a psychology person, I'm also going to bring up, I mean, it can't be very pleasant for Putin to have this hanging over his head, right? He might listen to cheap talk and, and say, you know, uh, Jeff and Marcus are right. Like, I have nothing to worry about in all likelihood. I'm never going to be arrested. But the, the, the slim chance, the non-zero probability that one day this will come to fruition and you will be arrested by somebody, either abroad you go to visit uh, Paris or something, or in your own, in Moscow, in St. Petersburg, you know, somebody comes arrest you because the, the political winds have changed. I can't imagine it's going to be too pleasant to live under that uh, potential, right? And so from a psychological perspective, I think this is, uh, if, you're, if you're into the idea that one of the things we need to be doing here is punishing Putin for his actions, this might be viewed also as some type of, of punishment, even if it doesn't relate, you know, result in jail time. The psychological distress, I would imagine, is is probably not insignificant. If Putin is listening, I'd, I'd just like to say, you know, come on the pod. We we can have a discussion. I will offer amnesty for the. I'm uh, going to draw the line. No, I I think authoritarian dictators we do not allow on the podcast. I thought we were all about you know talking whenever we can, keeping lines of communication open. That's a good point. Here you are, just like oh, you're not you're an authoritarian. We're not going to talk to you. I'll give I'll give I'll give I'll give Putin my pitch for ending the war. Okay, yeah, well, exactly. I'll give it a shot. I'll give yeah, it a shot. We, okay. uh, we need to be That's able good. to have those conversations so that we can we can make our case um, right. that for the immediate withdrawal of Russian forces from Ukraine, including Crimea. We should, on a serious note, though, create a list of heads of state that that 
we would like to have on the pod. I've been meaning to reach out to a few, but I just, it's just because we don't have a list yet. So I didn't know how to prioritize. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I'm having a hard time thinking of a head of state that we would not want to have on the pod. I mean, there, there may be, there may be, but uh, some of those small countries I can't identify. I don't know. Maybe they're, maybe they're heads of state or not. No, we we'll still have them. We'll still have them. Marcus, we thanks so much. We didn't talk about... Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, you got something else? Let's do it. I wanted to talk about the Iraq war, but you don't want to talk about it. What do you want to say about the Iraq war? I want to, I want to talk about, like, you know, all this time later, like, why, why you think we invaded, the United States invaded Iraq, and uh, what the, the repercussions were, like, what the ramifications of that, of that decision are. Because I think it's, I mean, in my mind, you know, it's, it's like one of the most consequential decisions of the last probably 50, 60 years. And I think we're still, like, many, many effects we're, we're still feeling. Um, and so I'd just be curious to kind of think about like why we did it in the first place. Um, do you think it, it was as much of a, of a bad decision as, as I do? And like, what were the effects? Like what, what sort of exists today that counterfactually might not be the case had we not, had the United States not invaded? Yeah. I thought, what are we, we're 20 years in now from the, we, from are, the initial, we are 20 years in initial invasion. Time flies, man. Well, um, I think that's a great topic for a conversation another day. That's a good teaser for for uh, the next episode of Cheap Talk when we will we will break down the Iraq War 20 years later and uh, see what we can learn I like it from that horrible misadventure I like well you sort of just sort of played you showed us your cards there, sorry right? was that you were thinking I was going to be like pro Iraq War <laughs> I was I was thinking you were going to be one of the ones that, that said like actually that was the right decision I am, I'm, I am do it again today if we had to regime. no yeah, um, okay. But yeah, we, we I think it's a, a worthwhile discussion. So because there's if, lots of different aspects, we have weapons of mass destruction, of course. Right. At, at one point, people were talking about nuclear weapons in Iraq. We have yeah. uh, international law. We have the UN. We just talked about you know sort of the the question about institutional effectiveness, and so we could compare contrast the the first Gulf War with the the Iraq. Well, many different roads we could go down. There's an intelligence story here that I think you probably have something interesting to say. Yeah. Uh, and then and then the effects I think are very interesting. I mean, are there are there things that are have occurred to the international system be, precisely because of the Iraq war that were unlikely to have occurred uh, without it? And I think there are, but I won't say what they are. We'll tease that next, next time. Yeah, I mean, if, if nothing happens, if there are no Chinese spy balloons in the next week, then um, we'll we'll hit this on the next on the next podcast. That's true. We will probably we'll, we'll probably have a TikTok ban that we're going to have to talk about next week, but Exactly. We'll we'll, we'll see what happens. The march of events uh there, it's, there's no stopping it. Um Marcus, thanks so much for for joining me today. Thank you. I had a I had a good time. And uh if uh if folks want to leave us some feedback, ask a question, we'd appreciate it. Go to cheaptalkpod at gmail.com, send us a note or speakpipe.com/cheaptalk and we will uh, love to hear what you have to say. You can tell Professor Holmes where he was wrong. Um, but in, until next time, um, take care, Marcus. Take it easy. We have big news uh, on the Cheap Talk podcast, and you might be able to tell already, but I have a brand new microphone that I'm currently speaking into. And so this is a little bit of an experiment. Maybe my voice will sound better, on the podcast, maybe it'll sound worse. Maybe listeners won't be able to discern a difference. I think it's going to be really fascinating to see what the feedback is like, pun not intended, on our new microphone situation. I think you shouldn't have told me that you had a new mic oh. to see if I could 
if you know if I mentioned anything about how you sound. So we, we missed the chance been. at a at a because now it's in my head that you got a new mic. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna assume right. that you sound better. Uh, that would have been that would have been clever on my part. Yeah. Uh, however, clever things don't happen very often when it comes to me. So I apologize for that. You're right. I shouldn't have said it to the listeners because then they could have like written in and be like, "What happened to Professor Holmes? Why does his voice sound so great now?" But yeah. alas, we missed our opportunity for that. Uh, do we have someone to thank for this, Marcus? We, uh, I guess you. <laughs> you told me to get the microphone. No, I mean, did did you buy, did you write a check for the mic? Oh no, I did not purchase this. So this was uh, uh, provided to us by the lovely Global Research Institute at William and Mary. So I would like to thank uh, the GRI and their various <laughs> sponsors, and uh, they see they see the value in our podcast. And I think this was an investment on their part. That's right. This this episode is brought to you by the Global Research Institute at, at William As and Mary. As is basically everything that we a hub you know, for international everything on campus. Exactly. <laughs>